Hello and welcome to another episode of What Comes Next, a show all about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Rob Kellner. I'm Amy Dickens. And I'm Kwaku Akonmensa. Hello and welcome to the final episode of AI for Good. Yes, it's the final episode already. How quickly has the month of May gone by? A quick reminder, this is our special four-part mini-series exploring how some of Britain's brightest entrepreneurs are using AI to solve some of the world's biggest challenges. As it is the final episode, we just wanted to say a massive thank you to the two organizations who have really helped make this series possible, Microsoft UK and the Social Tech Trust. If you've been listening to the series, you'll know how much support these two companies have offered to all of our guests and how they've helped make their technologies a reality. So a huge thanks to them for for being involved. And remember, you can find out much more about the awesome work these companies are doing in this space and how to get in touch with them by looking at the links and information in our show notes. So make sure you check those out too. All right, so to wrap up this series, we're speaking to two more fantastic companies. And then at the end of the show, we're doing something a bit different. Amy Quaker and I are going to have a nice catch up and talk about all the fantastic conversations we've had, share some of our highlights and have a little bit of discussion about AI in general. So it should be fun and make sure you stick around for it. So on to the first interview of this episode, I'm speaking to Andy Smith from MyCare, a company that is using a combination of AI and home monitoring tools to protect the elderly. Here's Andy. The MyCare technology um, is basically assisted technology that um, works in the home of an elderly person living by themselves. Uh, A lot of these people don't have access to the internet or a smartphone. So having something that is in their home that's um, unobtrusive, that monitors their vitals, um, such as temperature, oxygen saturation, uh, movement, and can post that back into the cloud and provide information to the, the family, the loved one, uh, their loved ones, the doctors and, and care providers to say this is how the person is um, behaving. So they got up at six o'clock, went to the bathroom and so on and so forth um, is uh, providing a lot of peace of mind to those folks, um, particularly in these challenging times where uh, most of the elderly uh, are actually locked down for a number of months. Um, so the way that it, the model works is to actually over a course of a about a week, it builds up a behavioural model of that person. So it knows that what they typically do day in and day out. And so from that, by taking the measurements, it can start to detect um, trends and abnormalities and so on. So, for example, if someone suddenly starts going to the bathroom a, a lot more times than average, then that might be the sign of something um, starting to occur. So we could raise alerts to as the appropriate people. Fantastic. So it sounds like two really important offerings. One is the medical analysis, checking that the person is medically and physically okay. And then there's this companion piece, which, you know, I imagine particularly recording this right now in the middle of lockdown is making an even bigger difference to users. It, it is. So just, just one uh, one clarification. So what the MyCare uh, offering does, it, it provides measurements. It doesn't try and provide diagnostics. So we can just say, this is what the heart rate looks like. This is what the blood pressure has been. This is what the footsteps have been. And so, on. so you can build up that pattern. We don't try and say, we think this person has got X. But in terms of the companionship, yeah, yeah there is a lot out there. So one of the things that we have is that the cube can actually uh, interact with the person, give them reminders to do things. So part of the research that... Um, we did was about a year working with the elderly in church groups, community groups and so on to actually understand the sorts of things they'd like to see 
and get from assistive technology and also in a couple of instances what they don't want to see uh, or, or have. So we got a great set of requirements over about a year's worth of research and then we built the technology. So the technology came after we knew what the requirements were. And that's where we get some extremely positive feedbacks, for example, um, giving the nudges to do things because um, elderly people um, do not like direct instructions. So if you get told it's time to take your medicine, they'll, they'll rebel. But if you get told, oh, I think it's about time we did this, then the person would react. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to approach the design process this way, to take a, you know, a great deal of input from the ultimate user before you start building the product. Because you, you do hear the same thing over and over again, that the people for whom products and services are designed aren't actually represented in the design process. Absolutely. So one example, and, and we've got a, a video I can send the link to, is a, a lady called Pam, who's a real uh, 86-year-old user. She had one of the typical models of uh, assistive uh, technology to help her, uh, but that was involved wearing a pendant with a panic button on the front. And she and other people said, we don't like wearing pendants. It itches it. We forget to put it back on if we've been into the bathroom and so on. So actually having the ability not to wear a pendant was something that we actually put into the um, philosophy of the uh, offerings uh, right from the start. And I think that's really fascinating because when I was looking into the technology in this space, uh, it's quite clear that, you know, A, you've made a real jump from a pendant to a whole home safety system, which is massive. But then you've also replaced what is, and iconic is the wrong word, but a piece of technology we so associate with the care of older people, and that's the pendant. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that that was one of the pieces of feedback we got very early on. And I think one of the other key things that we're doing is we're continuing to meet with um, the elderly people to tell them about new capabilities we're putting in, um, getting their feedback before it actually gets released. So another example is the ability to be told what the weather forecast is in your area. Because as we know, particularly in the UK, people like to know about what the weather's like. <laughs> So I know there are different ways you can set up a MyCare home system, but could you just give us a general sense of what the system looks like? I know there's the MyCare Cube and the sensors as well. How can this, or how does this generally all fit together? Yeah, so if you imagine the actual cube is slightly bigger than a Rubik's Cube, so not, not huge, and that just plugs into uh, an appropriate room, which may be the, the living room, the hallway, whatever. You then have a number of PIR sensors that can just literally, again, be plugged in so you can uh, measure the movement, the temperature, and, and various other things around the house. Uh, because, again, with elderly folks, hydration is very, very key. So as the um, temperature changes, you may want to encourage them to drink more uh, and, and so on. And then you have um, standard um, off-the-shelf devices for things like thermometers, blood pressure cuffs, uh, oximeters, and so on, so that um, as long as they have something like a Bluetooth or other standard uh, protocol, that can interface into the cube. Um, the other thing that we've created is a, a bracelet. So if you imagine just strapping something on like a watch, which has the ability to do um, steps, heart rate, blood pressures, and so on and so forth. Um, and also it acts as a watch. Um, and then part of the research that we did was to find out that people like the idea of something like a bracelet, but the feedback said, we want big numbers on it. So you know, it's, it's a bracelet, it's slightly bigger than a, a normal watch face, but it's got lots of big numbers on it so they can tell the time easily. So you're obviously keeping a close eye on your users. You're measuring a, a range of variables to determine if they're safe and healthy. 
So I, I wonder, have users raised any concerns about their privacy at all? Uh, well, the, one of the, well, again, one of the bits of feedback that we got fairly early on is we don't want cameras. So there's no right. camera of a MyCare solution, um, but we, we listen out to Sun and, and this and the other. And what we found out was that the people actually who actually use it and their families regard it as unobtrusive. So it just sits in the corner and listens and gathers information. It doesn't try and tell, but as I mentioned, doesn't try and tell people what to do. It doesn't actually look at them and see what they do. We, we did have conversations with them, but the pushback was very severe. No, we don't want cameras in our house. So the way it's viewed and actually used is it's, it's in there just listening and monitoring. And I guess there's another advantage of the system that given the amount of information you're collecting, you're able to spot conditions and warning signs quite early. Yeah, so one of the things that we think, particularly in, um, in these um, trying times, is that um, we'd be able to detect, uh, let's say, increase in temperature, decrease in oxygen saturation, um, heart rate going beyond certain bounds. And um, speaking as um, someone whose father went, went through this process, which is part of the reason I joined my care, it's something that the technology may be able to detect before the person even becomes aware of it. And if it's something wow. that the trend, um, you know, and it may be very subtle, but if you know that you know this is how a person's typical behaviour is, and this is the premises they live within, and we can then start to see something that could be that could or is it becoming an abnormality, we can then say actually there might be something going on. It may be as simple as just sending an alert to the next door neighbour saying we've just noticed this. Can you pop around and have a look? Okay, so once you have data that points to there being an issue. What happens then? Is it that you generally send the information to friends and family and neighbours or is there a possibility of sending this data straight to the NHS or another healthcare provider? Because I imagine that's perhaps the logical conclusion of where this technology will go. Yes, yeah, so one of the management team within my care is actually a practising GP and he gives us advice about the worst effects of I get overwhelmed with the amount of data each day I don't want to be bombarded with lots more data. Right. What I need to be made aware of is something exceptional. Uh, so that's okay. If, we, um, we, you know, if, if the if the GP um, wants to be told about an exceptional event happening, that can be configured. It can, you know, can also be configured to tell, you know, care providers or, you know, as I said, friends, family, neighbours to actually say this is happening. But obviously, if it's a, a major issue, like we haven't detected movement for a period of time, if someone's in the bathroom, then we can raise an alert to the appropriate um, teams or authorities. Okay, and that GP that's part of your management team, they're able to draw the distinction between warning signs that you would want to relay to a medical professional and those that you wouldn't and would but would want to send to friends and family instead well i, I think it um what the way i'd look at it is the fact that he he would turn around and say i would i would like to know about that um it doesn't necessarily mean that he will then speak to that person it might just be oh that's that's interesting so we you know we, we don't as i said we don't try and provide diagnostics we provide information and it's then up to the professionals to say this is worthy of a certain action it sounds like this kind of system could also really help like other groups of people in need of enhanced monitoring and more care, so people with conditions that perhaps aren't related to age, is that a route you're considering as well? That's something that we're discussing, certainly. What, what we need to do, obviously, um, is to focus on our core market, which is the elderly and the other market, uh, which t- unfortunately typically goes hand in hand, is people living with dementia. Uh, but then we have had conversations with a variety of other groups. So 
is there ways we can work with people who may be suffering uh, respiratory difficulty, uh, potentially people um, of a lot younger age who uh, may be on the spectrum. Uh, so can we help with them with those, depending on the sort of nature of whatever condition they have that may be presented. So there's certain other conditions we are aware of that we may be able to assist with, but that's, uh, I'd say, once we get past, make sure we, we've got our core audience um, and market uh, happy with the solution we can provide. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. We talked a little bit before about how MyCube, which is the systems hub, has a built-in virtual assistant and how that assistant can help alleviate loneliness amongst older people in the UK, which is a massive problem. Now, we, we're getting increasingly used to virtual assistants. You know, there's Alexa and Siri and Cortana and so on. But how is a virtual assistant designed to address loneliness how does that differ from what's already out there like what extra considerations do you have to look at and kind of build into the system that's a good question i, I think it comes back to the voice assistant uh, um, provides information and nudges whereas there's a concern again some of the feedback we've got is uh things like alexa other, other brands are available is sit there listening, <laughs> listening to everything you're saying and there's a concern that we don't want to have uh the myq technology uh, doing the same sort of thing. So I think the differentiator is providing voice assistance, reminders and helpful hints and things like the weather that the people actually like. They don't like the idea of someone listening to everything they're doing. Right. Okay. So it's actually quite a bit different from the array of virtual assistants we're used to at the moment, which by their nature must kind of constantly monitor what we're saying. So can the assistant in MyCube have a conversation with a user? That's one of the things we're working on. We, we, I wouldn't say we've got there yet. One of, one of the things we are looking to do is can we use the voice assistant to uh, communicate with third parties, you know, so neighbours to have a call or local community uh, groups and so on and so forth. So that's one of the other areas that we're actively investigating because, as you've already alluded to, um, one of the things we're addressing on a one-to-one -one basis is the areas of loneliness, which is a huge problem for the elderly. I did see some stats uh, a while ago is that over 20,000, over 20,000, maybe higher elderly people go a whole week without any social interaction. So if we can actually, wow. with their loneliness aspect, and, and again, the Pamlet, the lady I referred to earlier, she actually says that the cube, just with the interaction she has directly with it, has actually helped her, helped her loneliness. But if we can actually work with uh, folks in the neighbourhood and the community to actually have some level of interaction, um, with them uh, through the queue, you know, possibly to say, you know, would you like to go around and have a cup of coffee with this person? You know, just to have 30 minutes of com companionship in the home. That is something we think is uh, worthy of investigation. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful idea. Uh, and um, actually adding to the stat about 20,000 people going a week without social interaction, I saw on Age UK's website that there are 1.4 million chronically lonely older people in England alone. That's just England, so many more in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales as well. This really is an epidemic and we're not talking about it, even though it's affecting so many people. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the other stat that um, I saw was that the uh, population of people aged um, 85 and over is going to double in the next 20 to 25 years. So the issue right. we have about the elderly and loneliness is, is, is potentially going to increase unless we, unless we do something about it. So I saw there are some really touching videos on your website of users talking about the technology and like the difference it's making. What kind of feedback have, have you had as a company from, from users? 
uh, the feedback's been extremely positive in, in the fact that, you know, people who have had the cube for a while, and the, I think the first cube went in, gosh, probably about 18 months ago now. Um, um, you know, I, don't, I think only one, possibly two people have actually given the cube back. So people who have actually got the cube and are using it um, are relying upon it. So there's nothing like a, a real live audience to actually give you that sort of feedback. And um, one of the other things that um, we're feeling quite proud of is the fact that, you know, we, we got our first contract was with... Um, uh, East Kent NHS, who are you know, the largest NHS um, in the country. And the second major contract was with a, an organisation called Dementia, uh, sorry, Harmonia Village, which is the first purpose-built dementia village in the UK, and it's based in Dover. Uh, so the the guys in, and, and ladies in there have actually given us some positive feedback about how they can see the benefit of the Cube um, assisting um, uh, their residents. That was Andy Smith from MyCare. Andy was also kind enough to send over that clip he mentioned of Pam, the real user who's 86, talking about the difference that MyCube is making for her. Here's a snippet. My name is Pam, and I'm 86 years old, and I've been living on my own now for about 18 years. But I don't feel lonely, and part of it is because I have this cube it's really welcoming in the morning to see the lovely colours at the top, round the top of the cube, and know that no, I know that it's looking after me. It's very good because the lady talks to me. She reminds me of taking my medicines, and sometimes when I take the wrong medicine, she will tell me. I know that it's it knows what I'm doing, where I'm going, and it, it just keeps an eye on me, and that I found very comforting. And there's no complicated wiring system and I've just felt that it was there and I had a friend. There's something I find really powerful in this clip, something that resonates with me and I think it's that what Pam is saying is one of the purest expressions of how AI and I guess technology in general can make lives better. That ultimately is the point of technology, at least it's supposed to be. Here you have Pam, who's been living alone for 18 years, who says she doesn't feel lonely, that the MyCube gave her a sense of security, that it feels like she has a friend. Throughout this AI for Good miniseries and what comes next in general, we've tried to tell stories about how technology can be a force for good and that we can all afford to be excited by that prospect that where technology is heading isn't something we need to be afraid of. Over these four episodes and the 20 episodes or so before this, I'm not sure anything has encapsulated that idea better than Pam's story. So a big thanks to Pam and thanks to Andy Smith and the whole of the MyCare team for sharing it with us. If you want to learn more about the fantastic work MyCare is doing, go to mycare.co.uk. That's M-I-I care.co.uk. Thanks, Rob. We're rounding up this episode by speaking with Dr. Zhuja Mayer, co-founder and CEO of EcoSync, a company harnessing the power of AI to reduce heat and energy waste in buildings. Here's Zhuja. 
So we are a spin-off company of Oxford University. Uh, the company itself was funded by Oxford Academics. And what we saw uh, primarily at higher education institute environment is that you have tons of empty rooms and they are just heated over the, uh, the heating period. So that's normally from September, October until April, uh, May. And these empty rooms, they are just wasting energy. And it just didn't make any sense. Why do you heat the empty rooms? Uh, so we started to look into the, the, the problem. We uh, understood or we, we understand the, the whole uh, issue uh, quite well by now by working with facilities managers, estate services, uh, larger uh, institutes managing hundreds of buildings. And what we see is that it's a very, very common problem of commercial buildings. Um, mm -hmm. Approximately 70% of the rooms are empty, wasting energy. And the reason for that is mainly because there, there's uh, the way we are managing temperature of commercial building is never, uh, it's not a zoned heating, it's not room by room. So it's either heating is on or it's off, or may, you might have a setback temperature for the night or for the weekend, but it's for the entire building. And that type of flexibility was, was missing. So this is the technology that we started to develop back in 2017. And uh, we are now focusing on, on um, commercial buildings, as I mentioned, student accommodation buildings, uh, hotels, offices, and uh, our specialties is really the older listed buildings without any smart building management system, just old standard average buildings. So you were saying that currently a lot of a lot of buildings are heating rooms that aren't being used. Like, for example, I guess a hotel is a great example when when there aren't people in the room, there might be heating being used. So how does how does your technology improve on on like the standard thermostat where it's just switching on and off when a when a room hits a certain temperature? How does it take that to the next level? So, well, Lots of additional things that we managed to include in the technology to save energy. So yes, you, you have those thermostats or thermostatic radiator valves that uh, make sure that the rooms are not overheated. So once you reach the set temperature, let's say 22 degrees, then uh, it's controlling your radiator, making sure that it's not uh, increasing the temperature further. One of the problems is, is uh, with, with approach that you are still heating your empty room. So that TR mm -hmm. has no information yep. on, on occupancy. So that was a, one of the challenges we, we had to fix and address. And then the other problem is with this uh, all type of, of uh, thermostatic radiator valves is that if they are not uh, adjusted properly, because to be honest, majority of the people, they have no clue how to how to adjust the temperature. <laughs> just in one to five scale or something like that. So when their room is overheated, it's not their home. So they, they are really not conscious about the about the uh about the energy bills so what they do they just yep. open the windows so that's the the way of controlling temperature instead of of um, fiddling with the with the radiator valves plus most of the time they are behind furniture behind the, the your your office desk uh and we cannot really expect users to to turn off the heating when they leave the the their offices for example for the weekend and then arrive back to the cold room on Monday morning and, and wait until the, the, the room is reaching a right temperature. So it just didn't work. Yeah, I guess there's a there's like that behavioral um, or habitual problem that you're overcoming as well, where people just aren't, they're either not aware of the energy that they are consuming or they just don't care. 
So this is something that overcomes the the apathy or the ignorance, I guess. It's an ignorance, but I don't think that that's that's the main main issue. I I wouldn't expect. Uh, someone working in an office or arriving to a hotel room to take care of these things. You have other things you to take care of. It's yeah, yeah, it's not sure. your home. It's you. You feel that it's it's the problem of someone else. Now we are helping those someone else, which is technically the facilities management of these institutes. So you were mentioning that one of the sort of main um, strengths that you have is being able to get information on occupancy. So can you tell me a little bit about how you detect how many people are in a room or how often a room is being used? Okay, so the traditional approach here, and you find uh, extremely good companies uh, focusing on sensors, different IoT uh, devices uh, placed in the rooms to detect occupancy. So that's uh, a very Mm -hmm. um, common approach. Uh, we had we saw two issues with with uh, this approach. One is it adds additional hardware installation cost um, to to any building, and if you have a commercial building with 300, 350 rooms, uh, one device would cost you I don't know 50, 60 pounds, and that, those are the cheaper ones. That's actually a, a significant investment. The other problem with these devices is that they they use energy, so you have to have someone in facilities management team going around and changing batteries all day long. Right. Um, so our approach is really to minimize uh, hardware installation in the in the buildings and use the existing technology. Uh, by existing technology, uh, I mean the room booking system. We always start with the mm-hmm. room booking system because it's got a lot of uh, information on occupancy. Uh, if you think of, of your um, office environment, there is a, a, a software for uh, for the meeting rooms to book the meeting rooms. Uh, same with, with uh, student accommodation buildings, hotels. There's already a system in place. We just mm. need to pull the information from the room booking system, making sure that we don't see personal information because we don't want to see personal information. And then obviously you have uh, rooms in the building, not in the room booking system. So your private office, uh, shared offices, hallways, corridors, kitchens. For those, we add our own hardware-free occupancy detection technology. And this is just using the existing Wi-Fi system of the building. Again, we are just pulling information from the existing technology. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit more about the the system that you use for the rooms that maybe don't have a booking system um, like the kitchen? Okay, so the original technology uh, was developed by MIT students. Uh, they were playing with the mobile signal and, and uh, they just had some fun tracking each other at the uh, university campus. Um, mm-hmm. When you have a Wi-Fi system in the building, it has access points and your mobile iPhone is is connecting to these access points. And even when you don't have the actual Wi-Fi password, your device is sending out the request and we see that request uh, coming through. We see the number of devices. We see the differences between laptops and mobile phones. Okay, so it, it, I mean, forgive me if this is simplifying it, but it basically will understand how many devices there are in a room and it will kind of make an assumption that that means there's a person in the room. Yes, exactly. I give you an idea about the next question we normally get at this point, like, okay, but what happens if I don't have my mobile phone on me or how (laughs) accurate is that? So that's the, the, the question we get a lot. And fair enough, the accuracy is around 70%. 
uh, still more accurate than the carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide based uh, occupancy detectors. I'm, I'm not quite sure how they were, but uh, checking the, the composition of the of the air and uh, making assumptions on on occupancy. So it's still um, uh, more accurate than that. Um, and because it's not 100% accurate, we don't use it for direct control. We don't say that, okay, there's no device in the room, so it must be empty time time to, to uh, adjust the temperature. We don't do that. We use that information. So if we have an AI team uh, doing reinforcement learning, we learn about the pattern of the users to be able to make, make uh, predictions on, on occupancy. Okay, so can you go into a bit more detail about the AI and how that feeds back into the, the system? So we work with various uh, data that we collect um, uh, from the from the buildings and, and from the users. We also add uh, real-time weather data um, and we are using this data for two purposes. One is to make sure that the sat temperature of the rooms um, is uh, uh, minimizing the energy consumption. So this is really an optimization challenge. And the other way of using the data is to make prediction on the energy usage of the of the building. So that uh, is getting more and more important uh, to be able to manage uh, energy grids in the future if we want to move away from the fossil fuels and the uh, less predictable um, renewable energy. Okay, so you could feasibly be looking at a building and say, okay, it's uh, it's the 22nd of April, it's 19 degrees outside, this building in this type of weather on a Wednesday is the, the rooms are normally, like the pattern of occupancy in the rooms is like this, and therefore we expect the energy consumption to be this. Is, is that more That's or less correct. it? That's okay. correct. And does this... Um, does the technology tend to work better in, I don't know, more, uh, I guess, buildings with like a higher BREM rating or something, buildings that are set up to be more energy efficient anyway, or can it be applied to, can it be retrofitted? Can buildings it, yeah. be retrofitted? Yes, that's definitely, it's a, it's a very easy and, and fast retrofitted uh, solution. So you don't even need to depressurize your system or get a different boiler or anything like that. That was very important for us to to develop the technology uh, that way. And if you have a very energy efficient building, you might still um, uh, heat empty rooms. So the answer mm. really depends on on the occupancy level. If the occupancy is high all year round and you have uh, good uh, good windows and and no heat loss, um, no heat leaking, uh, then you you have a great building. That's good for you. That's normally not the not the case. Um, so our specialty is really the older buildings. These are buildings before the 1970s because mm -hmm. energy was very, very cheap at uh, that time and uh, insulation was not a high priority. Um, listed buildings. So we were create buildings uh, from the from the 15th century, um, buildings that no one is really willing to touch and, and improve because, oh my God, it's a listed building. Um, mm. So... So really, um, it depends on 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 the the building, the weather conditions. We are doing now uh, calculations for a, for a construction site. Uh, it's in Kazakhstan, very 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 different uh, weather conditions. Um, so we are doing now the the uh, corrections based on on the on the local climate, and we actually have a calculator online 
that uh, anyone can can uh, use. What you put in is your existing gas data, some information on the occupancy, some information on the type of the building. Is it accommodation or an office building where it's mainly meeting rooms with really hectic uh, schedule? And then you just press start and we will do the calculations on the on the actual saving opportunity. But it's really the combination of your location, weather, uh, occupancy ratio and, and the existing um, gas consumption of the of the building. I think it's really interesting what you just said there about how you're um, one of the things you wanted to focus on was things like listed buildings, which other people just don't want to touch. And I guess with the solution that you've come up with, because there is so little hardware involved, you actually have the upper hand in um, sort of making these buildings much more efficient without actually having to do any cosmetic damage, I guess. Exactly. So that was um, a requirement wherever we started a new project, like, please, no wires. And so it's a wireless mm. um, technology. So, Zhuja, are you working on anything, on anything new with EcoSync? Uh, yes, we have some very, very exciting features uh, coming up. And we are focusing on the development over the summer because we normally have this summer period to uh, roll out new features when the heating is not on uh, in our buildings. Uh, one of the uh, new features is gamification. Uh, for the end users, we want to um, make it a bit more fun, more engaging to interact with the with the building. So this is this is another very important um, uh, aspect for us to make sure that the end users, whoever is working in the offices or staying in the in the hotel room, has full uh, control over the uh, the temperature settings, uh, and they are uh, comfortable and productive. There are lots of smart solutions where this control is taken away from from the end users, and that's something quite frustrating. We are actually actively inviting the end users to to communicate and interact with the building. And uh, and I mentioned the gamification. That's just to improve user engagement. Thinking of mm-hmm. students in a, in a student accommodation. What we are working on now is that uh, we are going to show the carbon footprint of the individual users, not just for the whole building. That's easy. Ah. But we are actually uh, giving the carbon footprint of the individual users uh, with the leaders boards so users can actually compete with each other and we can reward sustainable behavior so what we would like to see in the future is not just uh, students competing with each other but maybe student accommodation buildings or even universities or even countries uh, so and you know in a fun way so really it's, it's a bit about use changing user behavior in a very very subtle way um, directing users into the right direction while we are doing the heavy lifting. So obviously the system already is saving energy, but we want to involve the, um, the end users as well. Uh, so that's uh, one of the features uh, we are adding. And the other one is a feature for those uh, shared offices uh, or seminar rooms where you have multiple users and they might have different temperature preferences. And you will find tons of you know literature on this that we have different preferences based on on your uh, gender age or just even if you if you had a good night's sleep or or you are tired um and there is something what we call a, a thermostat war 
Uh, <laughs> I'm very familiar. Very, everyone is familiar with that. So <laughs> there are three different outcomes. Uh, who's controlling the temperature? This is the question. Who's controlling the temperature? And the answer is that it's either the uh, person sitting right next to the thermostat or mm-hmm. the person who's complaining the loudest or the boss. <laughs> but the outcome is always the same. Like no one is really satisfied with the, with the temperature settings. So we are the first one making the temperature control fully democratic. Uh, we have a voting algorithm uh, that we are rolling out uh, in September, and the um, the concept is very simple. If you have a mobile phone, you have access to the temperature control, but we don't want you to override the temperature settings of, of others. But we are collecting temperature change requests from all the users, or if you are actually satisfied, satisfied with the temperature settings and you are not using your mobile phone to request any changes, or why would you request the temperature to stay? You don't even think about that. In that case, you are a silent voter, and we know that you are there because we already track occupancy. So we can we can use all this information to come up with the right temperature setting that is actually uh, making the majority of the people happy. So this is how we make it democratic. And obviously, this is just an additional comfort feature for the occupied rooms. But again, our specialty is really saving energy when the room is empty. But we are not forgetting about the users when the rooms are in use. That was Juja Mayer, who is doing her part to help the users of buildings be that little bit greener. If you want to find out more about EcoSync, you can read up on them at ecosync.energy. Thank you very much for that, Amy. And now, something a bit different. Amy, Kwaku and I are going to catch up and share our thoughts about the series. So Amy and Kwaku, it's been a while since we all spoke, uh, spoke on air at least. We've all been off doing our separate interviews for this series. So first things first, how have you both been? I've been pretty good, Rob. I have, um, you guys can see me on video, so you might rec- you might notice or maybe not that I am rocking this new style called COVID haircut. I attempted <laughs> to cut my own hair yesterday. <laughs> that is what my life has become. So I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah, I've, um, I've got uh, some very kind of lame uh, facial hair that's sort of slowly, slowly <laughs> making its presence felt. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been up to alongside uh, a bunch of uh, YouTube rabbit holes uh, over the last few days. So yeah. What have you been up to, Rob? Always good with the YouTube rabbit holes. Um, I think like a lot of people, I've just been doing kind of trivia pub quiz after pub quiz. I'm averaging sort of three a week right now. Um, and it kind of got me thinking that, you know, when this is all over, you're going to have quiz nights filled with like expert quizzes with really long hair. Like everyone just pulled like the, sh- <laughs> like the sort of superhero short straw. All our superhero powers are growing lots of hair and being able to recall exactly when all the kings and queens of England died, um, which is a really like odd outcome. Do you know, I keep hearing this. I've not done a single quiz this entire time. I, I don't understand who these people are that are doing all these quizzes. Oh, mate. Okay, well, maybe we should do a what comes next quiz. We can, we can organize that. That would be quite fun, yeah, actually. Yeah, that would be good, actually. Oh, goodness. I yeah. really put my foot in it there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, okay, so good to catch up with, with everyone. Um, and I think also it's, it's, it's good to say that I think the three of us have been uh, in a lucky position kind of during the lockdown. We've had this really cool project to work on for, I think, the last like two or three months now. Like it's been going a while. Um, obviously, this is the, the last episode, the last segment of the last episode, sadly. Um, and so first off, I think, I think uh, yeah, we just want to say a really big thank you to all the guests that, that came on the show. 
Yeah, massive thank you for that. It was such a cool experience talking with all these people. Yeah, a really um, welcome distraction from some of the things that are going on in the world right now as well. It's just, you know, diving into these completely new sectors and, and listening to people who are really passionate about them. So thank you to all of the guests for their time. So we each spoke to uh, a number of companies working in, like you said, Quakey, a range of different kind of industries and spaces, and they all had really interesting stories. So I guess out of the companies that you didn't interview, but have heard kind of other people interview on the show, whose technology sort of spoke to you most? Yeah, um, you know, I really enjoyed um, your interview in episode two, Rob, with Baobab Connect. I just, I've got so much time for the work that they're doing. It, and the uh, the figure that I, I, I took away from that was um, there are only 25,000 lawyers in the whole of South Africa. And um, it was one of those things where you realize like the legal frameworks that exist, no matter how important we believe them to be, they are a luxury for the selected few, the, for the privileged. Um, and that's obviously being used to devastating effect all across the world right now. So it was really interesting um, to hear about the work that Baobab uh, are doing and the way that technology is supporting people who don't have access um, to, to legal support. Yeah, I think um, I, I really enjoyed Kweku's interview with Signly. I think that independent access to information is like, let's face it, it's a basic human right at this point. I found it really interesting to find out that written English is not uh, a substitute for BSL. Um, Quaker was surprised by that in the interview. Mark said it's one of the first things that he learned. And that was like a real takeaway for me is that, you know, it's, it, it's not really good enough to say that we communicate because the written English is there. Yeah. And I just found that the story he told about his friend, Rachel, who has parents who are, are BSL users, and they didn't even understand what COVID-19 was because they hadn't, the information wasn't accessible to them. I just thought that was a really touching story and really highlights the problem that they're trying to solve. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree, Amy. When Mark said that um, for people that are born deaf, which is uh, people who are deaf with a capital D, that, that English can be a second language and that BSL is the first language. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. incredible. That was so, so interesting. And I completely agree. I thought it was a fascinating interview. And I thought, Amy, your interview with my cognition was just really, really fascinating. The idea that you can use brain training to improve mental health was just yeah. fascinating, completely new to me. Because I, I, I don't know about you guys, I often play or played those sort of brain training games where you try and think where it tries to improve your memory or reaction time, whatever. <laughs> yeah. The idea that that could be used to um, actually increase your, yeah, your mental health, um, your kind of mental endurance, it sounds like under stress is, is fascinating. And I think that, you know, as, as a society, we talk more about mental health, which is fantastic. It's also good if we have sort of accessible tools that we can use to turn that conversation into sort of um, like an actionable thing of, okay, yeah, we know mental health is important. We're talking about it now. What can we do about it? And I think they're on the front lines of that. I think that's really, really cool. So so clearly in talking to these entrepreneurs, we learn a, a lot about a variety of industries. Um, and personally speaking, their industries I didn't know a lot about before until we start started preparing for the interviews. So I just want to talk about some of the, the most interesting things we learned or important things we learned kind of along the way. Amy, let's start with you. What were some of the things you, you really took away from your, your interviews? Well, uh, in episode three, when I interviewed Good Boost, I learned how to say musculoskeletal, which <laughs> trust me, is 
no small feet. You nailed um, it, by the way. I have to say, you absolutely it nailed has, it. It has a ring to it. You've done it well. <laughs> yeah, that, thank you very much for podcast editing. Um, no, uh, to, to, to be to be real, um, MSK problems are. I didn't realize how widespread they were. Um, I think Ben says that they're the second largest cause of people missing work after cold and flu. Um, and there are huge costs to the NHS, and it's just something that I never like. I, you know, I, I assumed that they were a problem, but didn't really realize how widespread the problem is. And I love the fact that their technology has like an analog side to it, so it's it's you know for people who are physically interacting in the real world, uh, but are using technology to improve on their their treatment. Um, and the other people I spoke with, like EcoSync, same thing, a problem I didn't really think much like it just didn't occur to me is lights being left on in buildings um and there's a fairly simple solution to that well not simple but there's a there's a good technological solution to that um which they're working through to save energy and save the impact on the environment my cognition i mean i think you said it all before rob it's uh anything that kind of boosts our mental health and helps the state of mind that we may be in at any given time especially during times like this is um is really notable. And hello, lamppost. I mean, I love those. Guys. You, you, you know me, I'm an urbanist. I absolutely. absolutely love the fact of being able to interact with your city in this really fun and playful way. But it also has like a, a feedback loop. It also gives something to the city. So it gives them information to help improve um, the areas that people are accessing. So yeah, I had a really great time with my with my interviewees. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Kweku, over to you. What did you think about your interviews? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the, the first one that springs to mind um, was the the chat with Victor at Recyclite. I mean, man, we had some serious technical difficulties during that call. So thank you again to Victor for kind of bearing with us on that one. Um, but what I took from that was um, this this picture of um, waste management that I just had no idea about before. So, you know, we're talking about these huge manual sorting um, factories, essentially, um, where now we have this incredible, uh, powerful AI that Recycler has created that can automate a lot of that process um, and can really kind of change the face of waste management. We touched on some awesome kind of areas about the role that the public has to play in putting pressure on uh, large corporations, the role of legislation. We really kind of uh, started to scratch the surface on on some quite interesting topics. I could have sat and talked to him for, for hours. So yeah, that was a really, really good one. Um, you guys, uh, yeah, you, you heard the, the conversation with Mark at, um, at Signly um, in episode one. Man, that, that just really shone a light on my ignorance as to how um, restrictive something that I consider to be so open as the internet actually is. You know, we're talking about really dense written information. And whilst you know, vast majorities of the, the public are now moving towards consuming video content, realistically there's this huge um subsection of society that hasn't got access to those um uh, those videos and that audio and so um yeah that was that was really really interesting to hear about thanks to mark for talking me through that and then um finally in episode three um yeah this this is an interesting one so orcs grid what they're basically talking about is the fact that regardless of um how much we want to change the the future of our um our energy consumption so you know reduction of fossil fuels or bringing online millions of um, electric vehicles none of that is possible unless we uh, start from the ground up 
and evolve the energy networks that already exist um, in our major cities and in the rest of our society. So it's this cascade um, that will allow innovation to be unlocked in different areas. Um, and that was really cool to kind of hear him uh, give his take on that and the and the role that Orcs are Good was going to have to play. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. And I think that, um, yeah, from, from my perspective, I think... Perhaps the most astonishing thing I learned was um, actually it's, it's from um, my interview earlier in this episode, which is um, how big a problem loneliness amongst the elderly is in the UK, presumably in lots of other parts of the world too. But um, we, we talked about sort of two uh, kind of big stats, which which were, I think, both both stunning. One is that, that 20,000 elderly people every week go the whole week without any kind of social interaction. Um, hmm. And the other being that, yeah, in England alone, so there are many more in the UK, but in England alone, there are 1.4 million chronically lonely older people, um, which is which is staggering. And I think I said in the, the interview, it's the pandemic we're not talking about. Mm. And so, you know, big um, uh, a big well done to to my care for, for tackling this. Um, clearly, technology isn't the only, only thing we need here. Um, obviously, there seems to be a need for kind of a big societal rethink about how we uh, engage with our elders um, and how we treat them. Um, but, but, you know, good job for Mike effort for doing something. Um, so that was one, uh, the, the, the fact that stuttering is chronic, I thought was really interesting too. So this came out of, um, my chat with Jordi Fernandez, uh, founder of Benny talk, which is, as he puts it, they're trying to make the Fitbit for speech, but I never knew that if you, if you stutter when you're young, um, you never actually lose it. It's all about kind of controlling it and practicing different things that, um, you can use to, yeah, you can use to sort of control it and speak fluidly. And that's why I think one of the reasons that many talks is really useful here is that it's, it's a technology, it's a wearable, an app that is helping people with stutters to, to kind of gain that control. So I thought that was really cool. Um, again, a, a, a problem I never knew existed and a solution that seems really suitable. So I thought it was really, really cool too. And then just the last thing that kind of tickled me uh, from the Baobab Connect interview was this idea of the Netflix lawyer, which I thought was a beautiful term, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is, yeah, just like, as like an experienced lawyer who just sits down at the end of the day, had a, you know, had a hard day. And while they're watching Netflix, they just like open their emails, open WhatsApp, or whatever, and just dole out a quick piece of advice just because it's, it's easy for them, uh, which I thought was just a, a beautiful image. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this comes from Guy Stern from um, from Baobab Connect, and he's uh, he's making this what they call the Slack for Justice, the idea that making this this kind of Netflix uh, lawyer e- even easier or even more accessible. It's great to hear that we all got a lot from the interviews, and it sounds like we were all able to explore pieces of technology uh, and areas of the world we didn't really know too much about before. So I want to just touch on one last kind of idea or, or, or question, which is that. Obviously, we've been spending the last you know two months thinking about a lot about AI and specifically kind of AI for good. Um, I think that meshes quite well with generally what we do with what comes next generally, which is talk about tech in a sort of positive and generally exciting light. But when it comes to AI, we heard from Tim Alshake uh, in, in episode 13 that AI has got, there's so much anti-AI sentiment out there in the world that it's really challenging for AI companies. So I kind of wondered, has your perception of AI changed as a result of all these interviews and, and the series generally? I, well, we touched on this a little in episode seven when we uh, talked about science fiction and literature and film. Mm. And so I, I don't know that this series has changed the way I view AI as a force for good, but I think what it has done is really highlight just how intertwined AI is in everything we do. Like it's it, it's over so many different sectors. It's just... It's used for all different kinds of reasons, some of them 
maybe not so good. But then there's also all these different areas where, um, you know, you, you have what seems to be maybe a small problem or maybe uh, a huge problem in some cases, and technology is able to solve that um, efficiently and relatively cheaply. So I think, yeah, my, my big takeaway is just how prevalent it is. Yeah, I, I think it's about the speed of development, right? Like the the human race is um, expanding into numerous different frontiers at the rate of knots, right? And we're causing these, unfortunately, often trails of destruction in our wake. Um, I'm particularly thinking about uh, the conversation with Recycle right now. You know, we're causing these insane amounts of waste. And now we have a, a technology that can almost uh, help us to catch up to the speed at which we're creating that waste and, and help to sort it and recycle it. And I think that the thing that this series highlighted for me is that there are these um, incredible kind of silver bullets that um, the AI will, will produce for us or will represent for us um, in, in solving problems that we wouldn't have had, uh, or wouldn't really stood a chance at solving previously. Has it changed my view of AI overall? I, oh, I don't think so. Um, it shone certain parts of it in a better light, but I do think that there's still an incredible amount of responsibility upon us, uh, placed upon us and, um, that we should be aware of whenever we're, we're approaching, um, the use of AI, um, and also who is benefiting from the use of AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that would be my takeaway. Rob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think I'm with Quakey that my, my view of AI hasn't really changed in the sense that I think I tend to think of AI as a bit like the internet. It's this groundbreaking technology. There are going to be good uses with, with positive impacts on humanity. There are going to be negative uses with negative impacts on humanity. Um, and, you know, uh, life is going to change to adapt to those new realities, right? We're going to have the AI equivalent of password managers, of VPNs. Um, But I think what was important about this series and important about this kind of narrative is that it shows the other side of the coin. We're so used to the sort of the, the glamorized Hollywood versions of the negative possibilities of AI that it's nice to be at least putting forward the other side of of the of the argument is just to show people there is there is some positivity here there is the potential for ai to change people's lives and now really it's up to us to sort of fight for that and push in that direction because i think it's you know the future is malleable and i think it's up to us to 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 fight for the future that we want sadly that brings us to the end of our ai for good series thank you very much for listening to the show Amy Quake and I just want to say another really big thanks to all of our guests over the last four shows. It's been awesome to talk to companies that are doing such cool and important work with AI. We wish every single one of them the best of luck. We also want to say a really special thanks again to Microsoft UK and the Social Tech Trust who helped make this series possible. If you have any questions about anything we've discussed or the companies we've talked to, please drop us an email. We're at wcn at grantree.co.uk. Meanwhile, what comes next? We'll be back as usual in two weeks' time with another awesome guest. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss out. Thank you so much for listening again. We'll see you in two weeks' time.